0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. It is time for a Tech Stuff classic episode. This episode originally published on December 22nd, 2014, and it's very alliterative. The title is Tech Stuff. Tackles typewriters. So this time we're going to talk, again, sort of a historical look, but now we're going to look at typewriters, which actually have a slight connection to sewing machines, as it turns out. But uh, in order to look at this, I thought we'd look at sort of the history of typesetting. And to do that, you got to go back to the 15th century.
1: Yeah, we're all the way back. And it's one of those things, uh, and we'll talk about it, but I, I think... Have often heard people ask, like, why didn't the typewriter happen sooner? Yeah. And we're going to touch on that. Yeah.
0: So, way back in the 15th century, that's when uh, Johann Gutenberg.
1: Ouch, keep going. Johann,
0: <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, when Johann Gutenberg began to experiment with printing techniques. And by the 1450s, he had actually developed the famous printing press, uh, produced the Gutenberg Bible, probably the most famous uh, book from the medieval era simply because it was, well, medieval renaissance era, simply because it was the first one to be mass-produced in a rapid, uh, particularly compared to the other... Yes, it was rapid with
1: some air quotes around it. Yeah,
0: rapid with air quotes is definitely the way to go. But you didn't have to have a a school of monks hand-illuminating scripts in order to come out with copies of something. And um, we wouldn't really need a typewriter, however. This was, you know, meant... To produce things on a mass scale, like a single document on a mass scale, it wasn't meant to be uh, for one off. Right, you weren't going to to typeset a letter to your wife, dearest wife. <laughs> How
1: romantic would that be, though?
0: Right, yeah. Uh, like, <laughs> I employed three clerks <laughs> in the efforts I make to write to you to tell you my tuberculosis has settled. Um, no, that was not the the way things worked. But one of the reasons why. We didn't see a need for this sort of thing to, to creep into uh, other areas like the idea of can we make a device like a printing press, but for a personal use is that, uh, well, first until the Industrial Revolution, there was no way to create that kind of thing on a mass scale, right? Right. And you couldn't really go out and churn out a dozen typewriters in a day uh, back in the technology of the mid-15th century. There were
1: not factories yet. No.
0: But even if there were, the other part was that labor, particularly in Europe, was really cheap. And there was not really a need to go and find a labor-saving device for a person because...
1: There were plenty of people.
0: There were plenty of people who were starving and you could pay them a haypenny for them to write down what you... Assuming they could write. <laughs> they could write down what you wanted them to, to, to say. So... Um, but it would it wouldn't be too much longer. I mean, it's still pretty early when you look at the first patent or patent, as the case may be, for a typewriter, which dates all the way back to 1714.
1: Yeah, so we jumped forward like 300 years. Yeah, but again, nothing there's Still, an abundance of people very happy to do things in that time when they were not, you know, stumbling around dying. Right. Um, <laughs> or,
0: or, or making one another die. Yeah. No.
1: And then in 1714, uh, there was, as you said, the first patent for Henry Mill, and that was issued by Queen Anne of Great Britain, of course. Yep. And that patent, uh, Described an artificial machine or method for the impressing or transcribing of letters, singly or progressively one after another, as in writing, whereby all writings whatsoever may be engrossed in paper or parchment, so that the said machine or method may be of great use in settlements and public records, the impression being deeper and more lasting than any other writing, and not to be erased or counterfeited without manifest discovery."
0: Yep, that's, uh, that's patent language, guys. You can tell that uh-huh. that dates from 1714, and patents have become no less obtuse in that time.
1: Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's downright clear and brief compared to a lot of modern that's patents. That's true, that's true. Uh, and as is often the case, the more words there are, the less uh, we know about what actually happened in historical patents.
0: Yeah, in this case, we have no surviving illustrations or model, as far as we know mill never built one of these things perhaps he did but if he did there's no record of it so most of the sources i've read have essentially said there's there it was never it probably never existed yeah so uh but still it shows that people as far back as the early 18th century were thinking about creating a machine that would allow for uh the writing of words in a in a mechanized fashion then we move to forward another century, to 1808, and we have an Italian inventor, Pellegrino Turri, and he creates a typing machine for the Countess Carolina Fantoni di... Oh, sorry, not di. Da Fivisano. Man, my Italian's terrible. My German's <laughs> only slightly worse. Um, at least I didn't try and throw in one of those terrible, like, like over-the-top, stereotypical Italian accents, as I am wont to do. But... It was interesting, you know, he made this for the Countess for a specific reason.
1: Yeah, she could not handwrite because she uh, had lost her vision.
0: Yeah, so he created this device for her. Uh, we don't know what this particular device looked like. No model survives. However, unlike the case with Mill, we know that it existed because there are still... uh um, examples of the letters that the Countess wrote on this device.
1: Yeah, I would give anything to see how it worked and how it particularly addressed her lack of vision. Like if yeah. there was in sort of a variant, almost Braille-type situation going on. Because there had to be feel elements to the keys or she sure. had to memorize placement.
0: Right. We don't even know if there were keys on this device, right? We don't know what the mechanism yeah. was for it. We just know that it was uh, a thing that would allow her to write and it's pretty phenomenal. I, I, again, it's it's sad that that's lost to history, because I also would love to hear about you know what actually happened. Uh, but then we get to the point where the Americans get involved.
1: Yeah, as we move deeper into the 1800s, things really start cooking. Uh, the first one of note is William Austin Burt, and he was an American engineer, and he was issued a patent for what he called a typographer. And this basically resembled a large chunk of wood, and it had sort of a clock-like... Uh, face on one side of it. And according to this patent, it was 12 by 12, so 12 inches wide, 12 inches tall, and then 18 inches long. Right. So a little bit bigger than an actual cube in terms of dimension. Yeah. And then it was a little bit clunky in its actual function because to type a single letter, you'd have to rotate this lever and then you would press down on it and make that letter press against the paper. Yeah. So you're kind of just turning this dial to... I try to imagine what it would be like to like type an email that way and right. it makes me both laugh and cringe at the same time. Yeah,
0: the, the, there were a couple of things. I actually watched a video of one of these being used, but it was, uh, without any helpful narration to explain what was going on. And I honestly, I could not tell how you could make sure you were putting the right letter on the right spot on a page. It almost looked like. The impressions on the page were going willy-nilly, but I've seen actual letters that were written using the typ- typographer, and they look like a fairly eh, not the not the neatest typed letter you've ever right. seen, but it but it is obviously a typed letter.
1: and neater than handwriting.
0: Yeah, yeah. but however, it was not faster than handwriting. So this particular device never really took off. Also, there was a big setback. We talked about this, I think, in our sewing machine episode too. We
1: did, and it's actually come up in other episodes we've done and Stuff You Missed in History Class, that in uh, 1836, there was a huge fire at the U.S. Patent Office, which yeah. destroyed a lot of historical records.
0: Including the only existing model of this device. Now, there was a replica that was built and displayed for the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago. So if you weren't busy getting murdered by HH H. Holmes, you could have checked out the typographer. <laughs> I believe that was the same one as HH H. Holmes being active. I could be wrong about that, but That
1: seems correct, but I would want to check
0: it before <laughs> I. <laughs> well, at any rate, uh it just makes me think of The Devil in the White City and an, a fantastic <laughs> book that everyone should check out about the the exposition and also about HH H. Holmes. But uh yeah, so at least there was this replica built, and I think it was the replica. The Smithsonian, I believe, holds the actual replica Probably, today. Probably, yeah. And um, I saw the video of it being used in action, and again, it didn't have any helpful narration. The patent itself... Describes how it works, but again, it's using such obtuse language that I could not get the meaning from the description.
1: Yeah, it's kind of one of those things where if you had the machine and the patent in hand, and you could like step through the steps and yeah. work it out, it would probably become cl- crystal clear. Right, I could be but like, without well, no. those two elements of the key <laughs> together, you cannot crack the code. Exactly.
0: Completely. Yeah, it, my, it was it was completely uh, uh, obscured from me. Now, in 1843, we have another inventor, Charles Thurber, who incorporates two things that become very important in later uh, in, uh, implementations of typewriters. He incorporates a movable carriage. That's the part that holds the paper and the carriage itself moves as opposed to having to move the device around the paper in order to print the next uh, letter. So you type a letter, the carriage moves a space so that you can type the next letter, And then eventually you have to do a carriage return so that you can start typing again. Any of you guys out there who've never used a typewriter, and I assume there's probably more of you than there than otherwise, since typewriters are rarely used at all these days, you might not appreciate that. But of course, you get to the end of a line in a piece of paper and you have to move down and across to the, to get to the next line. And that's what the carriage return was all about. He also implemented metal levers that stamped the letters or numbers onto paper into his typing apparatus. And it was also considered to be really slow and clunky and cumbersome, so it never took off in the market. But those metal levers would become important. The mechanical action of moving a lever up to press against some sort of inked piece of paper or maybe carbon paper to then make an impression against a blank sheet of paper so that you stamp whatever letter it is uh, onto the sheet.
1: Yeah, those uh, carried on for many, 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 many moons after that. Yeah,
0: it, it and... This seems like a good time to just mention we're really looking at the, the early years of the typewriter and we're talking specifically about mechanical ones. We could continue that discussion and get into things like, uh, you know, electromechanical and electric typewriters. Oh but yeah. That's, that's an entirely, they, like that would, that would make a two hour podcast. So we're really focusing on the mechanical ones here. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, 1867 is when we meet a very important person in the way typewriters turned out.
1: Yeah, and we're going to give a little bit of backstory on him because he is such a pivotal figure. So Christopher Latham Scholes was a U.S. inventor. He was actually born in 1819. So by the time he was really kind of becoming a figure on the scene of typewriters, he was pretty mature. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had apprenticed for a printer for several years before he eventually became an editor at the Wisconsin Inquirer, which was based out of Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to work at other newspapers as well and head them out. And he even had a little bit of a um, foray into a political career. He uh, served in the state legislature. And then he left his newspaper time because... Someone very important came, sort of came into his life, and that was President Lincoln, who appointed him as collector at the port of Milwaukee. Huh. And so, in case anyone does not know what a collector at a port is, that's uh, the person who is responsible for collecting import duties and taxes on goods that are entering the port, and they kind oh. of oversee all those people that go and do those things.
0: I thought he was like a sommelier, <laughs> like that kind of port collector.
1: If only. Yeah. Yeah. No.
0: Okay. Well, uh, he ended up making friends with a fellow Samuel Soule, and in 1864 they were issued a patent for a machine that would number pages. So it was a the idea was it would sequentially number pages for like a book. So you would press this button and you get three and then four and then five, and uh, it was considered to be a a labor saving device. But then another fellow Carlos Glidden, uh, who was also a fellow inventor. You know, someone who who liked to work with this kind of stuff, looked at this and said, huh, what if you were to, I don't know, take the same principle that you created, but make it so that you could type, you know, letters onto a piece of paper. So you're using essentially the same approach that you're using here, but now you can actually type in words and make a, a, a mechanical typewriter.
1: Yeah, and that suggestion pretty much changed Scholl's life forever because he then focused almost exclusively on the typewriter for the rest of his career.
0: And so he produced a prototype. This is around 1868, but uh, it could only print the letter W. It was just really to show a proof of concept and not to, my dearest woo, it wasn't like that, Um, (laughs) but it was to see if he could actually do it. And he did. And then they said, all right, let's let's devote more effort into creating this uh this typewriter and to try and make one that we can end up marketing and patenting um so in 1868 they they had a typewriter patent issued to them to Scholes, glidden and soul collectively and Scholes was the primary person on that patent and uh yeah, I love that the note you have here that the first prototype was similar to a telegraph key. That exactly is what it was. Like you press down, yeah. you get that little W, and you're like,
1: just send all the W's you want. Yeah. Now,
0: granted, <laughs> if you if you get the letter upside down, you think it's just mmm. There you go. Like they had a really you do good W's meal. W's and M's. if yeah. You flipped
1: your page a lot. That's about it. And they did end up getting two more patents issued in the following years uh, because you know they were all inventors and tinkerers as we as we've said. So they were constantly trying to improve upon it.
0: We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more about typewriters after these messages. So in 1870, we get one of the coolest, weirdest typewriters ever. Uh, Rasmus Hansen invented what is called the writing ball. And you guys, you need to—if you don't know what this looks like—you've got to go on a on a Google image search or something. Pull up a picture of the Rasmus Molling hansen writing ball or typewriter ball. If, if that that will probably bring it up too. It looks like it could come right out of like a Clive Barker Hellraiser kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, absolutely does. Yeah, it's like Pinhead's cousin, you know, <laughs> uh, Keyhead, uh, I guess. Jim
1: Henson's Pinhead babies. Yeah,
0: maybe that could be it. Uh, so yeah, you look at this thing, it looks like it's, it's a a sphere that's been cut in half and it's got all the little keys that stick out of it. Um, and the Molling Hansen Society, which, by the way, is more than a little biased. (laughs) What? (laughs) They call it the world's first commercially produced typewriter. And, uh, Molling Hansen received lots of different prizes and recognition at various events around the world, mainly in Europe, but also in the United States for producing this this particular piece of technology. And his version would evolve over time. It wasn't just, you know, it, it wasn't one set and then it stayed that way, but it always retained that strange kind of ball shape. And uh, the society also claims that the key layout on the writing ball allowed for much faster typing than the QWERTY-based keyboards that would soon follow. So we still haven't gotten to the point where the QWERTY keyboard is a thing. That's coming pretty soon. but the society's like, well, that keyboard is slow and, and, <laughs> and laborious. This thing you could type really, really quickly. Now each key was connected to a piston and the piston would stamp a piece of paper either through a uh, carbon paper or inked ribbon. The paper itself was on kind of this curved, um, uh, setting. Like you would, you would put it, uh, it there was these long sheets of paper and they fit on this little curved platform that would, uh, ratchet up by, by, piece by piece. So if you're typing like facing the, the object, uh, it's almost like it's at a 90 degree angle the way that the paper is being typed. So you wouldn't type this like you would on a typewriter where you could, especially a modern typewriter where you can actually see what you've just typed. You type out a line and it would, it would be like, it would look like it's going vertically across the page to you, but it's because the entire page is yeah. 90 degrees from you. So it's a really odd thing. Uh, and, it's also uh, a
1: little Terry Gilliam. Like, that's a, yeah. that's a very Terry Gilliam historical film kind of piece. You, you would, would see, I
0: would completely expect to see this in the background during Brazil, yeah. for example. It, it would fit in exact. In fact, when I saw it, I thought, this looks like something from Brazil or maybe 12 monkeys. But, uh, Molling Hansen died when he was only 55 years old in 1890. And he had an outstanding order for 100 writing balls uh, from a manufacturer. And the manufacturer, you know, canceled it because the guy died. And since that point, no one ever made any more of them. They are uh, collector's items. I think one sold for like 100,000 euros at an auction not too long ago. There are a few in museums. They are considered to be uh really lovely pieces for people who have lots and lots of money.
1: Yeah, so not highly me. coveted in the typewriter aficionado herd. Yeah,
0: and who knew? There is one. Oh, yeah. I, I actually, I own an a good old, uh, I think it's a, I own a Remington and an Underwood, an old, both of them are pretty old, um, that I just happened to find at like a uh, an old uh, uh, secondhand shop, and I was very proud of them. They are, by the way... Some of the heaviest pieces of technology I've ever had to carry. Yeah,
1: we have an Underwood number 5 that has been in my husband's family forever, and it needs some work, but it's that's a backbreaker to huck it around the house. Well,
0: one interesting thing about the writing ball, apart from its strange shape and the fact that it supposedly was much more easy to type on than the QWERTY keyboards, was that a famous person uh, owned one, Friedrich Nietzsche.
1: Did I hear that it was a gift from his sister and his mother,
0: that's what I had originally read, although... Uh, I never
1: I'm, substantiated it. I couldn't find I, actual sources that said that was true.
0: That's what I heard, but I also heard that Malling Hansen delivered it in person to Nietzsche. So it may be that it was arranged by his mother and sister. Is We enter the realm of myth occasionally, <laughs> and I think this is one of those times... Uh, So, Nietzsche, his vision was failing, so he needed to have something to help him write. He wanted to continue writing, but he could not really see to write out things longhand. And what's really cool to me is that there are scholars who talk about how Nietzsche's writing, the style of Nietzsche's writing, changed when he switched over to typing on the writing ball as opposed to trying to write in longhand. And you might argue that that style could have been affected by the fact that he could no longer really see But most people said that it was the actual mechanical process of typing on the keys that changed the tone of his writing. And Nietzsche's response to this was actually that he agreed. He said, our writing equipment takes part in the forming of our thoughts. So the way that we are expressing ourselves, the medium through which we do it, impacts the way we we express that thought. And if we're writing longhand, we're going to do it in a different way than if we're typing. I think a lot of people would actually agree with that. Uh, but it's kind of fascinating that it was this early on in the, the birth of the typewriter that we see someone make that observation.
1: Wouldn't he be fascinated by texting?
0: He probably <laughs> yeah. OMG OMG.
1: Uh, and I, I mean, I completely subscribe to that mode of thought because I know even if I change pens, mm-hmm. my handwriting changes... Yeah. And the tone of my writing will change
0: based on that. If I have to write in pen, the tone changes so that I write as brief a message as I possibly can, because I'm left handed. (laughs) So I smudge a lot. But at any rate, Uh, getting back to in 1873, back to Scholes and and his uh, fully functional typewriter now. uh, It was finally a real improvement here in the United States over just writing things out with a pen, it was it was faster, it was easier, and that's where we get to the Scholes and Glidden typewriter.
1: Yeah, as we mentioned, sort of where we left off with these guys before uh, we went to the ball. Yeah, they were they had additional patents. They had really sort of started to refine and develop this thing, but they were having some very serious money problems. They just did not have. The capital to start churning these things out on their own, mm-hmm. so they sold the patent rights uh, for twelve thousand dollars in eighteen seventy three. That's
0: some serious money in eighteen seventy three. Yeah, that
1: is not jump change. Yeah. And the company that bought those rights uh, was the Remington Arms Company.
0: Wait, like, like, like the gun?
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, well, they did a lot of. They had their hands in many, many pies, uh, and so Scholes continued to work with Remington on this on the development of the typewriter, and the company had resources and machinery where they could develop and manufacture things. And it would eventually become the Remington typewriter. Right. Although the initial, the very first model that came out was still called the Shoals and Glidden.
0: Right. Uh, and, you know, Remington, I make the joke about the, the company that makes guns. Uh, we talked about them, I think, in our sewing machine episode because they also made sewing machines. Uh, it was one of the things that allowed them to uh, say, like, well, we've got a lot of the We've got a lot of uh, of expertise in making these machine parts, these fiddly bits that need to all work together. So uh, I think that we can take this on. And uh yeah, it was uh, if we if you were to look at a Scholes and Glidden typewriter, the the first batch to come out, you'd see all the basic parts of typewriters that would follow for many years afterwards, decades afterwards. Yeah. So they, it had the keys that were linked to levers. These were mechanical. So you press down on a key. It would cause the lever to pivot uh, and hit a sheet of paper. Uh, first, of course, striking an inked ribbon. So that's what actually would stamp the letter onto the sheet of paper. And uh, and however, you were had some limitations here. Like you could type any letter you wanted,
1: only if you love capitals though. Right.
0: This is, this is like a uh, constant scream. The first typewriters were like <laughs> YouTube commenters yeah. uh, who haven't figured out that the caps lock is not really an effective means of trying to get your point across. Um, yeah, there, there was, there were no lowercase letters. It was all uppercase.
1: And it also introduced the now standard QWERTY keyboard.
0: Right. And you might ask, Why the heck is the keyboard like that? Why do we have this weird layout? If you were to look at a keyboard, just take a look at a keyboard anywhere near you at the moment. You'll see, yeah, you're right. The letters are not in any kind of order that I would normally consider. So why is that? And there are a couple of reasons, or at least a couple of uh, reasons that we tend to think of today. The real reason is possibly lost to antiquity, but we can make some guesses.
1: I think it's a combo burrito of these reasons. I
0: think so, too. Uh,
1: the first one is that one of the problems was that if a user typed too quickly, uh the letters would jam up.
0: Yeah, the, the levers would cross one another. They'd get stuck. Then you'd have to unstick the levers, get them all back in place, and start again. Because keep in mind, this is purely mechanical.
1: Yeah, so there is the... The story that it was designed, this keyboard layout, is designed to kind of slow you down and not necessarily be intuitive where one letter follows another the way you would anticipate.
0: So it's still faster than writing, but not as fast as you would like it to be, because if it were as fast as you'd like it to be, it would all jam up. That's, that's one story. Yeah. Another one is just that the printing bars themselves, they, they wanted to separate out letters that would be uh, common combinations. So, like a T and an H yeah, would not exactly. be tight together. You wouldn't want the T and H to, to be placed so that the two bars would be right next to each other because they'd be more likely to jam one another. So you wanted to spread it out so that uh, any letters that would be a good combination would normally come from different parts of the machine, which meant that the keys themselves had to be placed in specific parts. So I'm guessing there was a lot of R&D that they did to figure out, like, well... If we put the T here, where do we put the H? Because the, if the H is right here, it's going to mess everything up.
1: I was going to say, I bet there is a notebook somewhere of like the most wonderfully bizarre series of tests and notes on how they could and couldn't arrange these. Right.
0: I can just imagine notes like, Glidden tried uh, uh, <laughs> tried keyboard number seven and caught fire today. And <laughs> tossed that one out. Uh, yeah, so it's probably a combination of these two things. Uh, I, I personally it may be that they wanted to physically slow people down so that they made the keyboard awkward as a result uh, but i think it's probably more likely they wanted to just get these letters as far apart the levers as far apart from the most common letters as possible and as a result the keyboard is awkward and thus we're slowed down but that that was not necessarily the intent however i don't know for sure
1: here's my favorite fact about the Scholz and Glidden typewriter. Okay, uh, it was made by Remington's Sewing Machine Division. Right, and if you have ever seen an older like treadle sewing machine, they often have these beautifully embellished little flowers and stuff on them. Mm-hmm. So did the typewriter.
0: Yeah, not only that, but the earliest typewriters uh, they had they were on top of a of a of a pedestal, like a sewing machine. Right, yeah. it was like part of a of a table almost. Yep, and they even had the earliest ones had foot pedals for the carriage return. Yeah. And so you which would- Which makes
1: sense. If that's your manufacturing equipment. Yeah. You have an engineer that goes, we can adapt that.
0: Well, yeah, especially if they're saying, look how effective this is on sewing machines. It only makes sense that we should have it where the same sort of thing works here. Only problem was that they, they discovered that putting the pedal, it, it wasn't always reliable. The carriage would catch. There would be problems. It would get jammed up. And so it wasn't, it wasn't long after that. I think it might have even been their second model, where they introduced the hand-powered carriage return, where that would be a little lever on one side. When you depress the lever, it allows you to push the carriage back to a starting position and start over again. So whenever you hear uh, old movies where you hear the typewriting sound, then you hear ding! That was the indicator that you were getting toward the end of the line. You needed to hit a carriage yes. return to start the next next page.
1: Did you ever type on a regular typewriter?
0: yeah. Because
1: yeah. I remember I would hear the ding and I would try to keep going as long as I could <laughs> was, because I was an obstinate child. It was
0: just you were playing chicken with the end of that piece of paper. Well, I
1: was also young enough that it wasn't really life and death kind of situation. <laughs> I,
0: I, had, um, I had I had the, the typewriter I was using as a kid was not it wasn't a hand powered uh, carriage return. It was an electric typewriter. But it still would do the ding. It wouldn't automatically go to the next line. You had to hit a hard return Mm -hmm. to do it. But I did type on that kind of typewriter as a kid. So there's a note here about this being an understroke machine. Holly, can you explain to me what that means?
1: Yeah, so this is uh, what's also referred to as a blind machine. And the way that the keys were arranged... Uh, and where they struck meant that the the space on which they typed was actually covered. It sat in like this little basket underneath the keys so that the typist could not actually see what they were typing. Gotcha. They had to lift up the carriage to check things out. And you've probably seen that happen in movies sometimes, mm-hmm. like older movies where you'll see the secretary typing away and then she'll pause and lift up the carriage and check. and right. That's what's going on, is that yeah. she simply could not see what she was typing.
0: Right. You, you would, didn't have any field of view of that at all. So you, once you started typing several lines, you could see the things that you typed 10 minutes ago, but you couldn't see the, the actual line that you're typing at that moment.
1: Right, which I would think would be maddening, but I guess yeah. people adapt to anything. Well,
0: I, yeah. I, I think I've finally gotten to a point now where I can type without looking at the screen, and I can be fairly confident that I'm doing it properly. But... When I was learning, it certainly would have been a detriment. <laughs> like seeing, not knowing if I typed, you know, something that was intelligible or just gobbledygook. Um, an interesting little, little point here. We talked about Nietzsche previously with the typing ball. Well, the original Remington typewriter also had a celebrity, uh, consumer, Mark Twain. He purchased an early Remington typewriter for the princely sum of $125 back in 1874. And then later on wrote a letter to the Remington company using the typewriter that said he would stop using the typewriter because he said it was a bad influence. I think he said it specifically, it was corrupting his morals because it was causing him to swear so much. <laughs> uh, however, in his 1904 autobiography, Twain said that his first novel was written on a typewriter, which isn't actually true because his first novel was Tom Sawyer and that was on a handwritten manuscript. His book, was not a novel but his book Life on the Mississippi was typed although some suspect that by then he had employed a typist and that he essentially dictated the the book to the typist and that he maintained his distance from the infernal device
1: and thus his moral high ground
0: yes he was he was, his his morality was preserved
1: uh, not long after the the Scholz and Glidden typewriter came out, another one called the Calligraph branded typewriter appeared on the market. And this machine made a, uh, another little step forward in terms of technology, in that now you could have upper or lower case; it was your choice. You could use them both, but they had a separate set of keys for each, instead of like the shift key that was so just...
0: so twice as many keys. Yeah. Wow, I I can't imagine what that must have looked like.
1: Busyness.
0: I, I would, yeah, it would have to be
1: so those two were clunking around and giving people opportunities to type like the wind for a while before in 1890, the Smith premier came onto the market it too used the QWERTY keyboard. Uh, and at that point that was becoming really standard in terms of, uh, how typing machines were going to work.
0: Right. And so a lot of typewriters at this point were starting to adopt this basic form factor, the one that we associate with old typewriters, but not everyone. No, now we're going to talk
1: about a really cool one. Yeah.
0: And this really is awesome. If you take a look at some of the ones we're about to talk about. Yeah. We're going to take a quick pause on the
1: episode for a
0: break, but we will be right back.
1: We're going back a few years to kind of the middle of that between 1880 and 1890 where things were mostly pretty much Smith, Glidden, Remington, and then the Smith premiere uh, to talk about the Hammond. And this did not follow the similar design to the Scholz and Glidden typewriter at all. It had this really unique looking curved keyboard. It kind of made like a U shape, Mm -hmm. uh, which was supposed to be much more ergonomically natural for people right
0: the whole typewriter was like a giant circle
1: yeah. yeah and it it also used this type shuttle made of vulcanized rubber it almost looked like a puck when you saw it just inserted into the middle of the machine mm-hmm. and it used that to imprint the paper and you could actually remove the shuttle and put in new shuttles if you wanted different typefaces and you could also do different languages yeah uh, which is pretty cool yeah
0: you could do it was like for example if you wanted to do something in a european language Uh, For example, German has letters that have umlauts or perhaps uh, French, which has accents over certain letters, which you couldn't do with a standard American typewriter. But this would allow you to have that flexibility where by switching out that shuttle, you could have a brand new typeface, whether it's a different font or even different letters that normally wouldn't be accessible to you. That's a really forward-thinking idea.
1: Yeah, and I I sort of liken the Hammond uh, as the typing equivalent to the Apple Newton. Yeah. This may seem weird, but come along with me. It had a really devoted following. There were a lot of people that were like... All right, that typewriter seemed cool, but this is perfect. Uh-huh. Uh, and they just loved it. It really seemed like the best branch of the technology tree to them at the time. And there were a lot of people that used them for way longer than you might have expected. Those things were built really well. They lasted forever. Well into the 1900s, people were still using them. Mm-hmm. And I, it makes me think of my friends that had Newtons that just insisted on carrying them forever when other people were like, really? What is that thing? It looks huge and clunky. You shut up. It's my Newton.
0: It just makes me think of the Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> Write it down on your Newton. Beat up Martin. Eat up Martha. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And I love that you have here that. You know, his ideas, James B. Hammond's ideas were preserved. His patents, he left them uh, upon his death to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So that that says a lot, too. This wasn't just a utilitarian device. It was a work of art. And if you look at one of these things, it really does. Yeah. I mean, anyone who has that that they love, like that steampunk aesthetic, something that lo- that just looks different, has a has real character to it. This, I think, has a lot of appeal.
1: Oh, yeah. They're gorgeous. And I, part of it is just like the curvy lines are just very sort of appealing to a lot of people, especially yeah. curvy lines in technology. If you
0: look at it from above, uh, based upon just the, the different elements, it kind of looks like a smiley face. The, key, <laughs> the keys are the, are the mouth. I and then there's a couple that. of round elements that look like eyes. Yeah,
1: I could see that. And they did keep making those even after James Hammond died. Um, but in the 1920s, so those were being made for quite a while at that point, almost mm-hmm. 40 years. Uh, the company was purchased by Frederick Hepburn Company. And the Hammond was eventually rebranded under the name Verityper, <laughs> uh, and, which is sort of much less romantic sounding.
0: Yeah, I think of Hammond organs when I hear yeah. the word Hammond. Yeah. Verityper, I think of some sort of velociraptor. <laughs>
1: yeah, and while it was still uh, the Hammond company, they had also been produ- uh, producing a design that was more of a rectangular keyboard, similar to the Scholz and Glidden. They were right. kind of like, we'll cover the whole market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was called the Hammond Universal. And the Verityper, once they had rebranded, it pretty much went along with that model and they abandoned that beautiful curvy design. Mm. And this also eventually introduced electricity into typing. Uh, I think that was the first one that had an electric typing function.
0: Right, so I like also that you have detailed out the first time we finally get away from that understroke approach, the one that didn't allow typists to actually see what was going on. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, the first one that allowed you to actually see was the Doherty mm-hmm. visible in 1891, which had front stroke and type bars that sat below the was it Platen Platen. I don't know. I don't know typewriter uh, lingo.
1: I have heard it both ways.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: But I don't know how much of that was regional dialect. All right. It. Well,
0: I'll just say Platon because I'm from the South. All right. Uh, it was just, and, and, but anyway, it hits the front of the the paper that way. And you could actually see where you could, what you were typing. And uh I think that is probably the biggest advance before you get to electric typewriters uh, that the, the basic system had, you know, it's, it's one of those things where the, the basic design of the mechanical typewriter, there were important developments, but it remained largely the same for a really long time.
1: Yeah. And really, like the Darty visible is probably one of those that anyone listening that has ever seen a typewriter would look at and go, oh, that's a typewriter. No. And they wouldn't really think a whole lot other than, oh, it's old and interesting. Whereas any of these previous models, they'd be like, that's a typewriter, but there's something really weird about it. Right. And it would be one of these other things like, that had not advanced yet. Why in terms does this of the typewriter time? have an accelerator?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that it's, it's great to think of uh, these tiny little things that we would you know, in retrospect, we see it being a huge benefit, but it's interesting just seeing people sit there and say, "You know what would be make this device really useful <laughs> if I could see what the heck I was typing."
1: Uh, and there were other models that did the same thing. Like once the the visible came out, there were, of course, many, many other tinkerers and companies that were like, oh, of course, we should have been doing this all along. Yeah. So uh a, a brand called the Williams came out and then a machine called the Oliver. But then this is also when I feel like the most famous of the old, old typewriters, I yeah. say with air quotes, came out, which is the Underwood. Right. And that came out in 1895.
0: I love, I love the Underwood I have. It is, like I said, incredibly heavy. It's one of the earlier models. Probably not. It, not I, I'm pretty sure it's from early 20th century, so not one of the first models that were released. But uh, they definitely have a lot of character to them. Um, and uh, I love that you have the origin story. It's like a superhero tale.
1: Well, you know, I always like when there's a little intrigue. So uh, the Underwood allegedly was born out of what I like to call a business burn, um, which is that the company that produced uh, Underwood was originally a company that just produced ribbons and carbon paper, for other typewriters and type mm. machines. But then Remington, which was, of course, the big player at that point in terms of the market, decided that they were going to do their own accessories and they didn't need Remington's products anymore, or uh they didn't need Underwood's products anymore. Underwood leadership was like, well, then fine, we're gonna make our own typewriter. Yeah. We'll use our own stuff. I just kind of love that. Uh,
0: once again, we see businesses entering into ecosystems that uh, that you get trapped in. You know, oh, I've got a ribbon, but it's only for an Underwood. Guess I better go out and buy an Underwood typewriter. <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder. I wonder if they ever got to the point where it was just cheaper to buy a new machine than a new ribbon, because that's kind of how we are so. with printers. <laughs>
1: I don't think so. Yeah,
0: no, that's that's a relatively new development.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, between sort of from the 1890 time frame up through the 20s, typewriters evolved a little bit, but uh, by the time we reached the 20s, they had really completely homogenized. Yeah, like they were almost all QWERTY. They were all using a ribbon. They all had the four rows or banks of keys mm-hmm. and one shift key. Like some of the previous ones, it had multiple shift keys depending on which keys you were trying to uh, switch over to the capital or lowercase. Mm-hmm. This is where it kind of really all just smoothed out. And
0: then from that point forward, we kind of stuck with that form factor until we got to the electromechanical and electrical typewriters and then started looking at different ways to imprint letters onto paper. But as I said, to cover all that would take another podcast. I did want to spend a little more time to talk about the QWERTY issue because... A lot of people pointed out that once you got away from the the metal levers coming up and hitting the paper, because that 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 held sway for a long time in typewriters, but eventually we got away from that, then there wasn't as much of a reason to keep the QWERTY keyboard. The only reason was that we were entrenched in that form factor. Yeah. You know, it was becomes wasn't,
1: that this is what we're all used to. Right. We'll just keep going. This is
0: the way we've done it forever, so we're going to keep doing it this way. But people were pointing out, they said, Well, if in fact the QWERTY keyboard was designed to either slow people down or to put common letters far apart, so that um, so that they, you you avoid this this jamming issue. And we now no longer have to worry about the jamming issue. Why don't we revisit the type the typewriter's a uh, uh, keyboard layout and see if we can create a better one?
1: No change is scary.
0: Yeah. Well, <laughs> early in the twentieth century, we had Doctor August Dvorak. Uh Who was looking into this, and he came up with a Dvorak keyboard? You've probably heard about that, and in fact, you may use one. There are people who use dvorak keyboards, and the idea was to reduce the amount of movement that fingers would typically need to make when typing. The idea being that if you have to type a lot, let's say that your job is a typist, that after a while you could really you know end up straining your your hands and hurting your fingers, trying to use this antiquated, ridiculous system that is inefficient on purpose. At least that was what the popular belief was. And so he laid out the keyboard in a totally different way to put the most common letters in the home row. That's the row where your fingers rest. So all the vowels except for Y were in the home row for the left hand. Oh, this was another interesting thing. So The QWERTY keyboard, according to Dvorak's uh, extensive studies, favors the left hand over the right, that the most popular letters in the English language are located on the left side of the keyboard and the less popular ones on the right. So right handers, which that's most of the population were having to work harder to try and type while we left-handers finally caught a darn break.
1: (laughs) Although, once you get in the computer age, if we're mousing a lot with the right then your left is freed up to do that typing a little bit more.
0: Yeah, but that just means that I can't click on anything. Even the playing
1: field for us righties. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. When you get to to the point where the mouse is involved and then you get into first-person shooters, I am left way behind. But uh, the Dvorak keyboard uh, tried to put those common letter combinations closer together to make it much easier to type. And Dvorak did some really extensive studies. He said... That if you look at a typical typing, you know, like if you were to type out a typical amount of words on a piece of paper, 52% of all typing would require keys on the top row. So the row above where your fingers are resting, 32% would be on the home row and 16% would be on the bottom row. Now he thought of the bottom row as being the most difficult to reach because you have to curl your fingers in a little bit, right? So he thought the best thing to do would be to concentrate the letters that are most common in the home row. Um, slightly fewer on the top row, and then the fewest on the bottom row. So his approach, he claims, or claimed, I should say, he passed away several years ago, uh, he claimed that his approach uh, meant that you would type 22% on the top row, 70% on the home row, and only 8% on the bottom row. And that these would then favor right-handers instead of left-handers, because why should I want to type anything? Uh, now... <laughs> Now, you can't really find a whole lot of Dvorak keyboards out there, although a lot of operating systems support Dvorak keyboards. Yeah. And and they have for years. I mean, there were, you know, the old Apple operating mm-hmm. system, not even Mac, but the old Apple operating system supported Dvorak keyboards. So you might be able to find that setting on your computer, and depending on what operating system you use, you could switch it to a Dvorak keyboard. And uh, if you really wanted, you know, you don't necessarily have to go out and buy a new keyboard, but you might want to buy some stickers... So that you can write the new letters and stick them on top of the letters that exist and then give it a try. Uh, Supposedly after a few, you know, it takes several hours of practice for you to get used to the new layout. But once you do, uh, I've heard and this is truly anecdotal that people have doubled their typing speed as a result. Someone claimed to have been to have gone from 50 words per minute to 100 words per minute. Um, just because it was so much easier and more efficient to type this way. Um,
1: I have never mucked around with one.
0: Neither have I. I have never used a Dvorak keyboard. I type pretty quickly. I think I'm right around 100 words per minute. So, uh, I, for the sake of humanity, I don't want to type faster.
1: Right. There would be smoke and stuff. Yeah. You don't. Scary.
0: You never know. I could summon Cthulhu. It, <laughs> it's one of those things. So, this was a fun topic to look at. I mean, it's really interesting to look back at the development of the typewriter. Less, less, uh, controversial, I would say, than the sewing machine.
1: Yeah, you don't get a lot of good stories about people getting punched in the face. No. There's, there's that one competition thing with Underwood, but it seems like it was all handled in a fairly gentlemanly kind of way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there were no pistols at dawn. No.
1: There's but, no throwing anyone down the steps like there was in the sewing, the sewing machine, machine episode. Right.
0: <laughs> right. And and also the uh I remember reading some of these where <laughs> don't get me wrong, typewriter enthusiasts can also get a little uh a little raucous because there was uh, there was one I was reading that was talking about how the Brits like to talk about how they Developed typewriter typewriters because you look at this patent from 1714, but no one ever made one of those typewriters. Are an American thing because in America we didn't have enough people to have cheap labor. <laughs> we were forced to work for ourselves, which is why we built labor-saving devices. And uh, as to the the truth of that, I cannot say. But this was a fun one to look at. Holly, thank you so much for joining me again for this episode. Appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure.
0: Where can folks find your stuff?
1: Uh, they can visit us at mistinhistory.com or on facebook.com slash mistinhistory, on Twitter at mistinhistory, uh, We're at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. Pretty much any iteration of social media, if you magically put in mistinhistory, will somehow pop up. I hope
0: you enjoyed that classic episode of Tech Stuff as we talked about typewriters,
1: uh, a story
0: that I've covered a couple of times in a couple different ways. So it was interesting to go back to this one. Obviously the show evolves over time and I occasionally revisit topics and uh, that partly it's because I think I can do a better job now than I did back then. And part of the time it's because I've done, uh, according to our publishing platform, there are more than 1600 episodes of tech stuff total. So sometimes I repeat myself. Hey, did you know sinister means left-handed anyway? Uh, we're going to wrap up this classic episode. If you have suggestions for future topics of Tech Stuff, let me know. Reach out to me on Twitter. The handle for the show is Tech Stuff HSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. TechStuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.